Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Revelation chapter 21. Today, we're going to be talking about the new heaven and the new earth. And a river runs through it. A river runs through it from Revelation 21. A river runs through it has always been one of my favorite movies. It's a movie based on a novel by Norman MacLean that recounts the story of two brothers in the late 19th century growing up in the wilderness in the mountains of Montana, but more importantly, on the rivers of Montana. And when the movie opens, there's an old man in his fly fishing regalia standing in the middle of a Montana river, tying a fly on his line, preparing to fish. And it begins to tell the story of his life. That man is Norman MacLean, the author of the story. And he, as the older brother in the story, narrates the entire movie and tells about the life that he is sharing. The movie recounts the life lessons learned while fishing as the son with a younger brother and a father who was a Presbyterian pastor. He talks about how God taught him and and how it was that his father taught he and his brother all things about life, but more importantly, how the relationships that were formed on the river really shaped everything about his life, about how he understood God about how he understood himself, how he understood other people, and even how he saw and understood the whole world. The story of two brothers with a father who was a pastor and their time on the river, that resonates deeply with me. I have an older brother and my father was a pastor. Had it been my story, it would have been a green John boat with a stub paddle weaving through the cypress stumps of the backwaters of the river. But when he says this, in the end, everything merges into one and a river runs through it. He makes a statement that we will find true in our text today about how it is that the lessons we learn at the river we will see in the passage today teach us everything about God, about ourselves, about other people, about life, even about the world In which we live. At the final judgment in Revelation chapter 19, we started the last four chapters of the book by looking at a party that broke out in heaven over Christ's victorious second coming, his return. In Revelation chapter 20 last week, we moved to see a people who were resurrected to rule with Christ, and we considered the millennium and and that span of time and what it meant. Well, today we come to the end of the millennium and we see a place of perfection with a provision where God dwells with his people and a river runs through it. God wants you to understand everything about your life and the way you live from lessons that he's teaching us, that we learn, and from the relationship that is formed at this river And so today I want you to see this in the message. God makes all things new 
so that all who believe in Jesus live eternally with him, supplied by the river and the tree of life. Now here's how I'm going to approach the message today. We're going to look at two clarifications that I think the scripture makes important for us in our understanding of eternity. And then we're going to consider three glorious realities of this new heaven and new earth. And those realities prove to us why every person should trust in Jesus to dwell eternity, eternally with God in the new heaven and the new earth. Let's begin by going to the text, and I'm going to read for us the first eight verses. Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with sulfur, fire and sulfur, which is the second death. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word today. Revelation 21 begins at the conclusion of the millennium and ushers us into eternity with a new heaven and a new earth. And this final vision that John has highlights the primary goal and the theme of the entire book of Revelation. And you could even argue the entire theme of all of Scripture. God's presence will be among his people in the new creation. Friends, here is the eternal hope of every Christ follower revealed. This is the explanation, the revelation of our eternal hope set forth for us that will never perish, never spoil, nor ever fade. And John sees a new heaven and a new earth, and he says that the first ones have passed away, and there will be no more sea. Some have asked, why will there not be a sea in the new heaven and the new earth? Some scholars debate, as we've talked about. Scholars love to debate. And so some of them debate that the sea was a representation as the source of much evil and darkness and, and, and doom in the scriptures. Even as we saw earlier in the book of Revelation where the beast comes forth from the sea, that was a representation in that. I think there's another reason, and I'll get to that in just a moment, but it just simply tells us the sea will be no more. 
And then it tells us that the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven from God like a bride adorned for her husband. And John hears a voice announce, Behold, the dwelling place of God will be with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Friends, this is the threefold promise of God's covenant of which the Bible repeats throughout. Of the earliest days in the whole of Scripture, we learn this is the three-part promise of God's salvation. I will be their God, and they will be my people, and I will dwell among them. And everything that we see in the scriptures are driven to reveal and to understand, to highlight and to illustrate this covenant that God and threefold promise that he has made. And then the voice of God announces the fulfillment of all the promises of scripture. This is where they culminate, friends. Every promise of God is here fulfilled. He has finally and fully come to dwell with his people. That's the significance of Revelation 21 and what it is revealing to us. This is the moment where every moment culminates and evaporates into eternity, where every promise of God finds its perfect fulfillment. This is where every tear is wiped away, where death will be no more, where there will be no more mourning, there will be no more crying, there will be no more pain. Why? Because those are all things that were former things, the scripture says, and here they have passed away. Heaven comes down and glory fills the earth. This is where I go back to the seas existing no more because the prophets tell us that in that day, the glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. The glory of God will be the sea of the new heaven and the new earth. And it will be covering all that is when heaven comes down. And then he hears another voice from the throne, the same voice, but again, that says, Behold, I am making all things new. This is the ultimate and the final answer to every prayer of supplication ever prayed. He said, what do you mean by this? Well, when the disciples asked the Lord Jesus on earth, Lord, teach us to pray. He said, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And so he identified the relationship we have with the one who is wholly other than us in his holiness and in his glory. But the next phrase he taught us to pray is what we call a prayer of supplication. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the resonating prayer of every worshiper of God. That what is true on earth would be a perfect reality and reflection of what is already in heaven. And that's what we see here. When God brings down the new Jerusalem, every prayer of supplication is perfectly answered right here. The kingdom has come. His will will be perfectly done on earth as it is in heaven. 
We also know here is where what is stated of every Christ follower gets made true of all things. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, the Bible tells us that if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, he says, the old is gone, the new has come. Friends, that is a foreshadowing declaration of the consummation of God in the new heavens and the new earth. And this is the reality with which we immerse ourselves today. We need to recognize what it is that is being said. You say, well, this may be a technicality. Maybe it is, but it's an eternal technicality of heaven that's important for us. This is not a new place. This is not a new place. Rather, this is a place made new there's a difference there friends and it says something about our God and what he intends in his will in the consummation God does not sweep his people away to a new place where all things are perfect but rather God comes and he sweeps away all things that are not perfect in the new that he makes of creation. Listen to me, friends. I don't know of anything that's more practical for you and I in our life today and the way God changes us when he saves us. Sometimes people look at their life and all they can remember are all the wrongs they've ever lived and all the sins they've ever committed, all the struggles they've ever had, you see, when God makes us new, he doesn't replace us with something new. He comes and makes us something new. That's what God's doing in each of our hearts and lives today. And what he's telling us in Revelation is that's what God will do even in the new heavens and the new earth. He is taking the place he has made and he is making it New In the consummation, he's sweeping all that things that are not perfect away to make new his creation. That's why what Paul in Romans chapter 8 verse 21 and 22 says that the groaning of creation and the pains of creation as the pains of childbirth that we are in the throes of now will be no more. Because even creation, which is subjected to futility by the one who subjected it, God himself, will make it new. And the futility, the frustration of it, will be removed. Friends, everything that does not reflect perfectly God's perfection in the new creation will be gone. And that's the first clarification I want you to see today. God redeems To make new his creation where together he dwells eternally with his redeemed and his made new people. God commands these words to be written down because they're trustworthy and true. God's testimony to us today is that we can trust him because his words are worthy of our trust. They are true. And it tells us that an angel who had one of the seven bowls of judgment, who, cl- uh, who, who brought forth the seventh bowl of judgment, rather, is here completing in God's declaration, and a voice comes from the throne that says, it is done. You see, I believe what John heard from heaven's throne in the seventh bowl judgment is now recognized by John He did not say that it was God back in chapter 17, but now he is acknowledging and recognizing that it was God speaking from his throne. 
One of two things is taking place here. This is either a repeating of what John has already introduced to us earlier, or it is a condensed retelling of what we've already seen with the expanded details that were given before and here given in a reduced manner to remind us of where we are. Let me just remind you of that. When that angel came out with the seventh bold judgment, there was a voice from heaven, the scripture tells us, that declared, it is done. It is done. And with the fulfillment of the seventh bold judgment, we saw the final judgment of God. All of God's judgments was consumed and came to an end. And from there, we moved into the millennium. So what I'm saying to us is I believe that John is repeating what he said there and he provided in expanded detail what transpired at that declaration, but at that same declaration, he's showing us the culmination of it here. In other words, there's continuity. Maybe God said it twice. But in the pattern of revelation that repeats and shows a condensed introduction and then a more detailed explanation, there we saw a more detailed explanation because of the timeline and the sequence of events. Now he is showing us, remember when God said it was done? This is what was done. That's what he's telling us. God said it was done. You thought it was back there, but actually this was as true then as it is now. What does that tell us? That the promises of God that are trustworthy and true are as sure and certain today, realities for the way you live today as they will ever be for eternity. You can't say to yourself, well, I'm gonna trust God one day when because God is not confined by the day when. Every day is his. His words are as true and faithful today as they shall ever be and worthy of your trust. All things at this time are consumed in the one who's alpha, who is the Alpha and the Omega, who is the sovereign ruler of the universe. And those who have trusted in Jesus Christ and his conquering, his victory, they will conquer because he has conquered. And that is contrasted against those who did not trust, who are here labeled as cowardly. What does that word mean? It means those who failed to remain faithful, those who are subject to the second death because they did not trust in Christ. And so we see in a very condensed version what is already we've seen in detail transpired in earlier chapters. Friends, let me say this to you for clarification number two. In the new that he makes of all things, God satisfies the longing and the desire of every person who conquers by faith in the one who conquered, the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we sing a song, like I'm fighting a battle, you've already won, it's a reminder to us of not just what is true today because of the cross and the empty tomb of Jesus Christ, but what will be true of us for all eternity because of that same cross and empty tomb. That war has already been won. You and I can trust in that fully today because it is done. That's God's testimony to you and to I today and to every person who will believe in Christ. Well, with these two clarifications set forth, 
I want to move to the eternal place where God dwells with his people in greater detail, beginning in verse 9 and move forward. And look at three glorious realities that reveal why every person, every person should put their faith in Jesus Christ to dwell eternity with God, eternally with God in the new heaven and the new earth. Look at verse 9. I'm not going to read all of this. I'm only going to read uh, a bit of it, but um, I'll stop in a moment. I'll start at verse (laughs) 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come and I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels, and on the gates, the name of the 12 tribes of the Son of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates, on the north, three gates, on the south, three gates, and on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Two more verses. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. Let's pause there. The new Jerusalem is presented to us here as that which has come down from heaven. God has come to us. And when the angel invites John to come see it, he introduces it as, come see the bride, the wife of the lamb. And again, John is, as, he's been, as, as has happened three other times, when he is taken away into these visions, it says he was in the Spirit. In other words, what's transpiring here is that John is being enabled to see without the earthly shackles what he could not see otherwise. What God is granting him the grace to be able to see for the recording of the purpose of the canon and the word of God to be relayed to us. He takes him up on a high mountain to see the holy city, Jerusalem, that comes down from heaven. This is the city of God's choosing for his eternal dwelling. And again, the text states that Jerusalem comes down from heaven. So instead of how so many typically think of going up to heaven, the text reveals to us that God brings heaven, specifically the holy city, New Jerusalem, down to us. It reminds us yet once again of our salvation, friends. Our God is not like every other God. Our God doesn't give us a list of to-dos and to-don'ts that we must accomplish if we ever hope to aspire and achieve up to him. The good news of Jesus Christ is that God comes down to us. In his incarnation, God comes to us as the word made flesh. In his resurrection, God comes to us as the one who demonstrates power over life and over death. And in the consummation and eternity, God comes down to us because he wants to dwell with his people. That's who God is. He's not a God that keeps you at arm length because there's some things that you need to get straight. He is a God that draws you in from wherever he finds you because his desire is to be with you. He is not like any other false God. 
He is God and God alone. John's vision is beyond imagination and brilliance and glory. I think this is probably one of the most important things for us to understand about all of Revelation, but surely about these chapters as well. It's not information to master by the intellect, but rather it is revelation to continually fill the very soul of who you are. So by the study of your mind and the engagement and the faith of your heart, it is God fill this soul with the glory of that which is beyond temporal comprehension in this world until that day when I see you as you are. And that's what happens to John. He's captivated by what he sees as it reflects the glory of God. And that phrase, the glory of God, known as the Shekinah, is always not only the representation, but signifies the presence of God in the Scripture, that God is actually present where he is spoken of here. And what he sees is the arraignment of rare jewels and purity and crystal and and, and adornment of glorification in, in worldly ways that we can use to describe, but surely fully do not comprehend or capture all the glory that was. The new Jerusalem is surrounded by a high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels. They are God's uh, uh, guardians, uh, if you will, of the new Jerusalem. Inscribed on the gates are the names Israel's 12 tribes in perfect symmetry encapsulating the city. And the city wall has 12 foundations that bear the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Now, understand what is being said here as well. Not only is God bringing the Old Testament and the New Testament together in perfect unity to reveal that he is the one that is spoken through all of it. That's the why we would say of the Bible, we understand every book has a human author, but the whole Bible has one divine author. It's God. That's what we believe about the scriptures. And here he is teaching how the unity of that comes about. Paul in the New Testament teaches that we are each members of God's household in Ephesians chapter 2, that we are built on the foundation of the apostles. The early church in Acts chapter 2 tells us that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Why? Because they understood it was not just teaching from man, but it was teaching from God. That God was revealing himself. And that's what he is establishing in surety and certainty here. For the new Jerusalem displays the unity of God's truth revealed through all the ages and the oneness of his people as established in the teaching of both his prophets and his apostles throughout the ages. I can only imagine those 12 angels that are the guardians of the city. They're the most bored people in eternity. Fashion on the wall. There's not even an enemy to attack. What are we, just eye candy? Yes. That's just lightning. And let's have some fun. It's okay. It's all right. Some of you are like, we're studying Revelation. We got to drive it in, baby. We're, you know, and you're as tense. It's, it's all right. I got a better one coming in just a moment. Just preparing you for it. The angel held a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. We've seen this again already. Revelation chapter 11, before the judgment transpired, we saw 
where a measuring rod was taken to measure the outer court and then the inner court. And in the measuring of the inner court, we said that it wasn't just to determine the calculation of its size, but it was to determine the identity of who was included. That measuring identified God's people for who would be not subject to his judgment because they were his people. And so here we see another measuring. It's not to identify, but rather to establish the glory of what is. This measuring serves the purpose of displaying the magnificence of the new Jerusalem. It's perfectly cubed at 12,000 stadia. That's representing God's people. Remember, the number 12 represents completeness. The multiplication of the number 12, whether it's in thousands or by itself, multiplied against or with itself, is not only completion but perfection. And what we're seeing in the significance of this is that this will be the eternal sanctuary of God's people. And what John is using is the measuring to magnify really everything that he is struggling to fully describe. I mean, John is pressing us right to the end of human language and vocabulary. And he's going, listen, I can't think of another word to, to include here to describe this. But, but there's more. I, I don't feel like I've fully captured all that I'm envisioning. The wall, it tells us, was 144 cubits, most likely referring to its thickness. 144 being 12 times 12. But its true significance is in the representation of its completeness. That the wall in its measurement was measured to be eternally secure. Eternally secure. The foundations were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first one being Jasper. If you remember from chapter 4 verse 3 when he first saw the throne in heaven. What emanated from the throne appeared as what? Jasper. What's he telling us here? He's telling us that every adornment of the new creation reflects and displays the glory of God. There's not one inch where God's glory is not fully manifested in the new creation. So glorious, he says. And he goes on to pronounce uh, jewels that, that are almost impronounceable. Some of them we don't even fully recognize because uh, um, uh, they're not as, as common. And we know what they are, but they're not even seen as often today. And that's what he's getting at, that these are rare that the preciousness of what is being uh, uh, radiated is, is without full exhaustion. And, and what John does is he exhausts every concept of bedazzled jewels and brilliant glory and things of ultimate worth for his description. And he says, and this doesn't even hold a candle to it. It's so much more, so much more. He says the 12 gates are each constructed of a single pearl. Can you imagine the size of a pearl? Of which the gate is fashioned from it. No, oh, I mean, it's huge, right? I'm going to take a little interpretive freedom here. You know what I'm imagining? The oyster that created that pearl. There's going to be 12 oysters on the half shell that start the marriage supper of the lamb. And they're going to be magnificent. God's got them in waiting right now. And if you like raw oysters, I'm telling you, that's going to be a delicacy of all delicacies. And the very gates that never get closed 
They're only there for display, but they're made of one of the most precious of all gems, the pearl. The streets were of pure gold, of a kind unknown in this world, clear from its perfect purity. You see, friends, the city that people tried to build in Genesis 11 in rebellion is here perfectly reflected by God. Perfectly represented and perfect in its completion. What people could not do, God didn't even struggle to do. But he willingly did for us. And this brings us to the first glorious reality why every person should trust in Jesus to to dwell eternity in the new heaven and new earth. God's new Jerusalem is perfectly adorned by his presence to dwell with his people. Friends, that's what you need to hear here. Don't get so overwhelmed with the details of glory, which it is, and it is totally good to meditate on it and let it just fill your heart. But don't miss this. All of that description is for this one purpose, because God is there with us. God is there. He is the reward of the Christian's life. Not what he gives, but he himself. The angel shows John New Jerusalem that comes down from heaven, and he introduces it as the bride, the wife of the Lamb. That's a reference to the purity and the intimacy that we will enjoy with God. This is contrasted against the prostitute of Babylon where the bride of Christ is made ready to be a faithful wife. She will not be the harlot that the prostitute of Babylon became. The promise of God stands in stark contrast as well to the immorality, to the idolatry of Babylon. For God's city is perfected by his holiness. His people are made ready by his redemption. And in the holy city, God's people enjoy an intimacy as our great reward with God himself. What we see but through a glass dimly now will be removed. And we will see him as he is because we will be like him. We will be like him. Now, one observation I want to make that I think is especially important. It has to do with the height of the New Jerusalem. 12,000 stadia, if you remember, was the measurement of each side. So, not only the footprint on the earth and its width and its length, but its height was 12,000 stadia as well. You see, if you looked at it on the earth, you would see that there's a representation of the Holy of Holies in the way that it was shaped, and the purpose even for which it was formed in the tabernacle and then later in the temple as well. But not only does the span on earth represent a perfect completeness with the 12,000, so complete times 12, 12 times 1,000, 12,000 is a completeness times perfection is what that number is communicating to us here, but that it is encompassing all of God's people. That's what the height is representing. It's a perfection from God as well. 12,000 stadia. That's equal to roughly 1,380 miles. Now let me just put that in modern perspective for us here to get a little gleaning on how high this really is. There is a thing called the Carmen Line and it is a designated boundary where the sky meets outer space. If you fly internationally on one of the biggest planes in the world today, you're probably going to cruise at an altitude of somewhere between 32 and 38,000 feet. 
There are military planes. I think the highest plane flies into the mid 40,000 feet. I could be wrong about that, but I know like even when we had that white spy balloon, it was at 60,000 feet and they were talking about how there's no airplanes that can fully get up to that high. So let's just say roughly when we travel, we fly between 32 and 38,000 miles above the earth, 38,000 feet above the earth, which is roughly seven miles. The Kármán line is 60 miles above the earth's surface. 60 miles above the earth's surface. And beyond the Kármán line is where Star Wars operates. You know, that's where they go into all the other places, right? Into outer space. 60 miles above the earth is 123rd the height of the New Jerusalem. 123rd. 1,380 miles is the height of the New Jerusalem. Why am I talking about all of this? To impress you with my math skills? No. For this reason. Here's my point. God is telling us that in the New Jerusalem, there will be no separation between heaven and earth. It will go as high as you could possibly fathom and then far beyond your greatest fathoming. Why? Because, friends, during all of our existence on the earth, even from the time of God's earliest peoples, the Holy of Holies told us one thing. God was completely separate from us. He was other than us. He was holy. And so only once a year would the high priest ever even dare to go into the Holy of Holies. And when he did, one person once a year, they'd tie a rope around his waist. Because if he didn't make proper atonement for his sins through a sacrifice, he would go into the presence of God and die. And behind a curtain that's roughly 16 to 18 inches thick itself, no one was going in to get the body if he died. That's why the rope was there. They would pull him out. Why? Because God was in there. We are out here. He's not like us. He's different than us. He's separate from us. What is God telling us? There is no separation. When God says, I will dwell with my people, he means heaven and earth shall become one. He will be with us. We won't see a representation of God. We won't hear from a representative of God. We will see him as he is because he will be with us. There's constant and continual access in dwelling with him. And listen, even as I describe that, constant and continual access with God, those words don't make any sense in eternity because they're all references to time which will not be. It will just be with God. This is what God has promised us. And this is what God has said is sure, trustworthy, and true. You see, reflecting the Holy of Holies, which was always an imperfect reflection, but a present reminder, the parameters of the new Jerusalem reveal the true Holy of Holies where God dwells where he dwells eternally, where he dwells eternally with his people. That's what John is communicating to us here. Well, in verses 22 to 27, we're introduced to no temple. John says, I looked and there wasn't a temple in Jerusalem. And friends, this is unfathomable to consider. 
Why is there not a temple? The temple was always the center of life for the Hebrew people and the Jewish people. The, the temple was where God dwelt among his people. But the temple now has become, he says, the Lord Almighty and the Lamb. And while God had always provided a representation to remind his people of his presence, in the Old Testament, you had the tabernacle in the wilderness and then the temple in the kingdom. In the New Testament, there was the heart of the regenerate person where God took up residence within us. And then there's the gathered body of the local church where God's presence dwells among us as we gather and, and, and what God's showing us here is, is that his presence, though, is not ultimate in any of these. It's real, but it's not ultimate. That's why Paul says, we see now but through a glass dimly, but then we shall see him as he is. The temple was a representation of God's presence with his people. And in the new Jerusalem, there is no need for a temple because you don't need to represent the one who's really present. God is there. This is not unimportant. It is critical. And, and, and God is present. As a matter of fact, you don't have to run wiring. You don't have to install any switches. There won't be any need for power. The eternal light source will be that there is no night. God and the Lamb will light the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem, by their presence. And we will actually live then the way some of us try to live now, constantly on, never resting. When we need our rest now, then we will be in perfect rest and perfect peace with him. Therefore, there will be no end to the light of which we enjoy with him. The gates will never be shut because there's no threat that could enter. And all the glory of the world comes into and bows down to him in recognition of the glory of God. This brings us to our second glorious reality. God consumes all glory to become our place of perfect worship by his presence. John is drawing from the language of the prophets and the language of the world to try and describe the reality of the new Jerusalem. And sometimes that can cause challenges, even Yay, debate. Imagine that. Two people that don't agree for our understanding of what he's doing. One scholar says the imagery of the apocalypse must of necessity be concrete and spatial. Why? Because that's who we are. Because we are concrete and spatial. Tangible. to Give us something that we can relate to to understand. But its significance, he goes on to say, is inevitably spiritual. What he's telling us is that God and Jesus... They are real and their presence will be true and they will sustain all things in the new Jerusalem. So where worship today is dimmed by our clouded view, in the new Jerusalem, all the redeemed of God from every nation, tribe, language, and tongue will worship our perfect God because we will be in his presence. And then finally, chapter 22, verses 1 through 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. John sees the new garden. So we have the city, New Jerusalem, that comes down. There's no temple. God is the temple. And here, the garden is fully redeemed. And in the garden, there is a river with the water of life that flows down through the streets with crystal clarity. 
And he tells us that the river is sourced from the very throne of God and it flows with the water of life. The water of life. And on either side is the tree of life. The tree of life. That's the tree that was disregarded originally in the garden. And so the presence was removed from that tree. But those who eat of that tree will live eternally, we learned. As a matter of fact, the tree of life has fruit that is so abundant, there will be a feature fruit each month. Isn't that neat? God knows all of y'all don't like pineapple or apple. Or, he says, you know, it's going to be a feature fruit each month. There's not months in heaven. So I don't know exactly how God's going to figure this out and feature the maybe different sides of the trees at all times. But there will be an endless supply of glory, abundance, listen to me, of pleasure, of satisfaction. There will be no want or longing that we have that will be illegitimately addressed or satisfied in heaven. You hear that? Every desire of our hearts will be perfectly and completely satisfied without ever waning, wavering, or relinquishing. That's, I mean, that's just too good to fully comprehend and yet fully true. God is the eternal supply of all things in the new garden by his glory. And this is the third reality that reveals why we should trust in Christ. God supplies for the joy and satisfaction of his people by the river with the water of life that flows from his throne and the tree of life that sources life abundant and eternal. The perfect provision to provide for eternal pleasures forevermore. This is the place that God will make new for us to spend eternity with him. And what sin destroyed in this world will have no presence in the garden. There won't be a hint, a trace, any effect, or any evidence of sin's curse in the new garden or the garden made new. It will be only the provision of God for the eternal pleasures of his people. Friends, that's why we end every service with the blessing to remind us of this. Remember when we say the Lord bless you and keep you? The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. We're trying to remind you that that is the lesson the river of heaven reminds us of every day. That there will be a day When day is no more. When day is forever. Because night is not present. That we will see God face to face. And live forever with him. And that will not only be true then. But that is true today. I'm going to ask the worship team to return. And I'll conclude as they come with these words. In the words of Norman McLean. Eventually all things merge into one and a river runs through it. You see, friends, there's a river that God has given to us to teach us all things about life, to teach us all things about him, to teach us all things about ourselves, to teach us all things about others, all things about this world. 
And that river teaches us each and every day as we consume our whole being with the glory of it, that He is God. He is worthy of our faith. He is worthy of our trust. He is true in all He says and all that He does. And He is the God who desires to spend eternity with you. Have you put your trust in Him? Have today you you repented of your sins and and called on the name of Jesus to receive the salvation that He brings so that when God comes to bring the new heaven and the new earth, the new Jerusalem, you will be with Him forever. That's the invitation today. And if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, that's the invitation God holds for you today. Won't you receive Him?